This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, we're doing a special episode focused on a survey Team Cymru recently conducted called The Voice of a Threat Hunter, where we surveyed over 200 experienced security analysts to learn what works and what doesn't work in their threat hunting program, how they measure success, and the biggest challenges that they face. To discuss the findings with me, I'm joined by Lewis Hoerman, Lead Associate of Cyber Risk Management at Booz Allen, and Tom Cross, presently an independent security consultant for the finance industry, but has held multiple leadership and practitioner roles in places like IBM X-Force, Landcope, Drawbridge Networks. They'll help us interpret and understand the results from their unique perspectives. Lewis, Tom, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, David. Thanks thanks for having so we recently ran the report, Voice of a Threat Hunter. Like I said, we uh, spoke with 200 practitioners. We gathered their insights and uh, put it into this report. And 38% of them cited the lack of proper tools as their biggest challenge. And my question is, is have you found that to be the case in your career? And what are some of the most powerful tools that you're seeing today? So, Lewis, why don't you go first? Yeah, David, that's a great question. You know, we we really, we hear it a lot. And I'll tell you that for me and in my experience, having the right tools is critical to anything to run effective risk management. You know, our perspective is, is from how do we manage, how do we identify risk, and what can tooling do to help that? The struggle that I see organizations have is both in identifying the right tools, but also gathering up that human expertise getting the right folks trained who can observe the right notifications, interpret them in a way that's helpful to increasing maturity, increasing the security of the environment. That is both a dual-pronged challenge, finding the right tools, finding the right people, and then getting those skills up to date. You know, we're seeing some fabulous developments and advancements, both in event management, also user behavior, you know, analytics, all these different kinds of very advanced inputs. But on the other side of that, it doesn't necessarily replace the human and the machine. We still need this advanced skill set to go in and be able to interpret some of the alerts. Is that a false alert? Is it a positive alert? What do we do with that alert on the processes in place? So all this kind of governance in the background, as well as having the right tool is one of the challenges that we see facing uh, security departments, especially CISOs and CIOs. That's what we're seeing today. Okay. And Tom? Well, so I'm kind of surprised by this result and I want to like take apart, you know, what it really means because I feel like we live in a time when we have an abundance of tools available. And I think like from a historical perspective, at least, you know, a lot of lessons have been learned over the past 10 years with respect to sophisticated targeted attacks that have resulted in a lot of capability being available sort of to collect telemetry. So I think when we're talking about threat hunting, really, the question is how much raw information can we collect about our environment? And there's a great deal of tools that will collect lots of endpoint and network telemetry and allow you to analyze that stuff and store it. I think the first thing is I tend to focus on like how much data do you have as opposed to what tools you've got? Like, do you have the raw resources needed to go hunting? But also if you don't have the telemetry, if you don't have visibility, then 
you know, it may be that like we get down this rabbit hole of the tools are out there. Maybe that a lot of people are struggling with budget authorization to get the tools that they need and they, they're having difficulty. It all fits together with this question of like, how am I justifying my threat hunting activities to the business? And, you know, am I getting authorization to get the kind of telemetry that I need? But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, whenever you talk to people who do incident response, you know, the thing that they need when they walk in the door is a rich set of data to go plumb through to try to figure out what happened to you. And if you don't have it, there's not a lot they can tell you, right? And so I think it is, you know, important for people to collect good telemetry. And I think that's important for people to be talking to the business about the value that that resource is going to have for them in a worst case scenario. Yeah. You know, Tom, you actually just enlightened me with the whole perspective on that, that I hadn't considered. And that is, there may be reasons why those tools that they are in need of aren't in their hands and they may be wholly untechnical. It may not be because the marketplace doesn't have the tool. It may be, like you said, perhaps they're unable to go articulate their need for the tool. And then therefore, you know, there's no budget for something that, you know, if you go in and say, we need an ice cream machine, you know, you probably don't, right? So, and it may be that they, as they try to explain what they want, that, you know, that they're not really able to do it. The thing that surprised me about 38%, because that's a significant number, right? Is I look back at my own career, right? I've been a practitioner for nearly 25 years now. And I hate to be like, you know, in my day, but we used to just have to make our own tools, right? Because there wasn't this marketplace of available offerings and solutions to the problems that we had. And when I think about the problem today, I mean, imagine if you had to look at a petabyte of log files with, you know, Perl uh, or something, it would be. So I, I think that might be part of the dilemma is that maybe there are so many offerings that people end up with the wrong tools or so many offerings that it's hard to convince people which tools that you need and whatnot. And then, you know, Lewis, you mentioned the the manpower component or the skills, let's call it the skills component. And I think that is also a tool that's being overlooked because perhaps a more talented analyst doesn't need some of those tools that this 38% of the people believe they do. Yeah, and maybe it's not even an actual need. Maybe they perceive themselves as needing some tool, but unfortunately, really what they needed is some type of talent increase. So thank you guys. That's in both cases, those are very good perspectives on this because like I said, I honestly hadn't considered either of those angles on this because we make many of these types of tools, right? So I was looking at it solely as a from the tool perspective, and I really wasn't considering these outside factors. David, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point that I think is is kind of worth digging into a little bit is that you're right, you know, pre-SaaS, pre-subscription model, our initial thought early in our careers was just build the tool that you need, mm-hmm. whether that was a macro, whether that was a script, you know, build the tool that you need, but that's because you were able to define exactly what you were trying to accomplish. And I wonder if part of this 38% is a little bit of a gap in understanding what you want to accomplish. What are you looking from the tool? Because a lot of times when I see vendor descriptions of their services, it's a mile long. If you only want a vanilla ice cream, you're out of luck. It's always going to come with chocolate chips or sprinkles or something added, and there's no chance to just get it what you need. So I wonder if this is a gap in clarity on what you're trying to achieve in the security environment. Or is there just, as you said, a plethora of tools out there with such a variety of services that folks don't even know where to begin and narrowing down on what it is 
that they need for their environment to right size and right fit to what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, very much agreed. Tom, anything else? I'm all about this idea that, you know, you kids today think you got it tough, but uh, I think I speak for the folks on this call that we've seen it worse in the past. I like thinking about the skills question, you know, maybe maybe the tools are out there, but you don't realize that they're there or you don't know how to use them. It does take a great deal of, of skills to be able to go through a massive amount of telemetry and understand all the formats of the different pieces of data you're collecting and know how to surface like useful information from that and, you know, say build searches that can surface uh, important facts, for example, there is a skill set to that. And so, you know, it certainly could be that people, you know, it may be that some subset of the people who are ticking the box and I want a tool are sort of expecting some of this stuff to be handed to them on a silver platter. And in fact, you know, the reality of thread hunting is maybe you're looking for things that are unique to your environment and you, right. you've got to actually develop the skills to use the tools that you have. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And some of that gap may be the side effect of what I would call kind of the skills and manpower shortage that we have. It could be that the workers as they're, or the hunters, the analysts, as they're coming up, maybe never got exposed to kind of nitty gritty situations. And yep. they always used tools that just gave them answers as opposed to helped them with work, if that makes sense. Because those are two different things, right? One is here's your frozen waffle. And the other is here's a waffle iron, a blender and some flour. You know, what I mean, those are like that you end up with a waffle both ways, but one is a significantly different process. So moving on to the next question. And interestingly, this, I think, now that I'm reapproaching some of these topics with the perspectives that you guys have shared, the next one is that 46% of respondents believe that trained analysts behind their threat hunting program are the number one reason for its effectiveness. So what advice do you guys have for organizations to make sure that their threat hunters have those skills and experience? And how do you find those people? How do you look for someone who has the ability to understand what an adversary is and how to spot it in their network? Yeah, I love this. Love this whole thought, David. I'll tell you, it's it's such a multi-pronged thought here where we could uh, take it from a ton of different angles. Mm -hmm. We'll see if I can hone in on about three top level ones. Okay. One, it's from the person's perspective. I'm a big believer in training, training and certifications. And, and I recognize over the years, certifications tend to get a bad rap. Someone's just going to go memorize, pass the test. The cert doesn't prove anything. I'll tell you what, I'll take someone who's managed to memorize everything on a Cisco cert exam, who at least took that much effort to get it. I'll take that because I can train that kind of adaptability. So, you know, I always encourage that, you know, folks go out there, seek out those training opportunities, seek out those certifications, uh, you know, so that's one from the individual perspective. Uh, the other is from a company perspective. You know, that folks need psychological safety to ask questions. Let, let Encourage an environment where folks can say, hey, I don't understand what this threat is, or I've never seen this threat in reality. Has anyone dealt with this before? And expose that gap so that members on the team or in the environment can bring those resources in. But to do that, you've got to establish a culture that's psychologically safe for someone to expose that they don't know. The final one I would say is from a larger organization perspective, provide those learning opportunities, put those resources out there, you know, be forward with it, encourage an environment of learning and development. And in that learning and development, encourage things outside of threat hunting. 
I've done tons of training outside of technology that have prepared me for the hacker mindset because hackers don't sit there all day reading about one specific thing. Like the rest of us, we were reading books about all kinds of things related to technology, but not necessarily about that one specific thing. Expand the learning process and mm -hmm. the mindset and take on this eagerness to learn things around the risk and around the technology that you're involved with. And I, I think with that, we can start to, to get in and increase this number, uh, this, what, 46%, mm -hmm. I believe, that, and get that number much higher. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it that way, because when I read this, I think it as they're saying that it's the people, not the tools. So I would think if you want people to like, and I'm just taking it in contrast with the first question, you know, it's almost the inverse. But anyway, Tom, your thoughts, sir? Yeah. So Lewis, I want to second the thing that you said about creating an environment where it's okay for people to say, I don't know this, because as computer people, especially coming up, like people get very focused on, you know, I know this, I knew that, and that's what makes me valuable. And I'm better than this other person because I've got this skill that they don't have. And that, that can breed an environment where people are afraid to admit that there's more that they need to learn. And, you know, we need to develop people. Um, the answer to the cybersecurity skill shortage is that those of us who have, you know, graying hair need to be able to, you know, develop more people who can understand the things that we understand. And so I'm really interested in, in mental models. And I think that, you know, what I used to see back when I was young is that you have these people who come at this stuff from some other IT background. They were assistant in or a network admin, or uh, maybe they wrote a little bit of code and they want to get into computer security, but they don't understand the dark side of the force. And so we've got to, you know, the things that we need them to learn to flesh out their understanding is what does malware what does an exploit do? Go write an exploit, go play around with the toolkit, you know, go do some scanning and try to get them to invert their thinking because they've been building and now they have to think about how to break, right? But I, I think increasingly these days, what I see are these people that I'm going to characterize as cybersecurity specialists. They've always wanted to be in computer security. They managed to go to school for computer security. Like they didn't have school for computer security when I was in school, right? And they are fluent with malware. They kind of like, they pay attention to threat intelligence and discussions about it. They kind of understand, you know, what a threat actor does, but they don't necessarily have a mental model of the, the internet itself. They've never configured DNS. And so, you know, it's actually a completely different set of things that I need them to work on in order to be able to think outside of their box. I want them to go spend a day building a web app in AWS and like configure all the things, right? And so I think you've got to look at, like sometimes we look at the certification path and we're like, oh, you want to go in this career direction. Well, what's the certification that, you know, is the next step for you in the direction you want to go? I think we've also got to think about how do I make you a more robust person by like having you do things that are for technical breadth, having you learn things that are general IT stuff so that you understand the systems that, you know, we're working with better. And I think the only other point that I'm going to make here is that as a manager, I think it's important that we make time for things, particularly when you're doing like things like security, like operations and incident response, you tend to be fire driven. There's like an inbox of events that you got to go investigate every day. And there's always something, right? And so when you give somebody a back burner task, that back burner task you know, doesn't have a tendency to get prioritized. And in particular, if you have certain kinds of tasks that require 
a great deal of sort of mental focus and isolation. So like when you ask somebody to write code, if you're going to write code, you kind of need to like not have meetings for a few hours so that you can like build this mental model of the piece of code you're trying to produce and produce it without having to like task switch. Right. And so, you know, I think it's useful if I've got, so we talk about it in DevOps, right? If you're in DevOps, dev needs to happen on Wednesday and ops needs to happen on Thursday so that you're either doing one or the other and you have time and space for the devs. Otherwise, the devs never going to get done because you're constantly going to be opting. And it's the same thing. If I want you to do some training, if I want you to do an exercise that's about developing you, it's useful if I can carve out time for it where you're not on the clock, you're not being asked to respond to events. And if I can structure my team so that people have windows of time like that, that's going to be much more effective than sort of saying, you should read this book, but not creating time and space for the person to actually like do it. Sure. No, that's a huge problem we're facing these days, I would argue, with the endless Zoom meetings and and all of this stuff. And if every one of those meetings produces something you're supposed to do, but you're literally in meetings all day, like the idea is you say you have to have a second work day in the evening, I guess, to prepare yourself to give the answers the next day. Saul Graham's got this like rant on his blog about a manager time versus maker time that I really like. And it it like talks about this concept from a different perspective. But like as a manager, you have this like your whole calendar is these 30 minute or hour long blocks and you just like stack them up with interactions with different people. Right. And then you just like naturally think, well, I got to go talk to someone who's a developer. I'm going to like block off an hour of their time and I'm going to do it whenever I have a hole in my calendar. And you don't think about the fact that because I did that at three o'clock, I just destroyed that person's afternoon because sure. I've broken up this five-hour chunk into two two-hour chunks. And two two-hour chunks are not as productive as a single four-hour chunk. Sure. No, I, I concur. So if I can summarize what I believe I understand, which, by the way, I, I very much agree, generalism, approaching this specialist role of threat hunter, you have to build that specialization on a generalization. And if you don't have that kind of overall knowledge, you're going to be at a handicap. One of my favorite questions for interviewing, in particular security staff, is I ask them, you know, you put in www.domain.com into your browser, tell me what happens. And I want them to get down to, I mean, if they can, ideally, they're, you know, talking UDP datagrams uh, to do name resolution and, you know, building a TCP socket and pulling down HTTP, doing HTTP requests, you know, and I look for that level of answer. But shockingly, only like 5% of people I've ever interviewed in my life get down to that level. Another one that I like to ask people, which referred to as like a buried shovel question, is I like to tell people that you've accidentally removed. And in my case, I came up through high-performance computing, so I have a strong Unix background. Uh, so I tend to ask questions in, in Unix space. And I'll ask them, like, you've accidentally removed the executable bit on bin Shamad, which is, you know, how you set permissions on a Unix system. How do you put the executable bit back? And I mean, off the top of my head, I could think of like 10 ways, right? But I want to see that these people can think, well, what happens if you bury your shovel? Like, how do you get your shovel back now? And in my experience, that's kind of the hallmark of one of these kind of general approaches, right? Like, how much do you really, you know, understand? As I've gotten older and further in my career, the other piece that I really think threat hunters are missing, and I didn't realize that I was missing it until I uh, got put into a role where I was kind of supporting revenue efforts. So think, you know, sales engineering, this type of work, you know, is that the awareness of your business, knowing what your business does, 
for a threat hunter, if you don't have business intelligence concepts in your head, like uh, Tom, like you're describing this mental map, if, if you don't have in your mental map what your business is doing for the sake of being in business, how are you going to know what in that business is attractive to adversaries? You are going to limit it to something like money or servers or, but what if it's actually some other component that you don't realize why you're unique in the market? And so I would add to that list of generalization as to like, go out and ask your, you know, finance office, what's your piece or your sales team and say, what do people think of us out there in the world? Because I tend to think security practitioners in particular, we end up putting ourselves in a box somehow. And we imagine that like, oh, well, that's just the business. And I make the business happen. And then they forget like, well, no, actually the need for the business is what made you happen. And you just enable that further need, you know? So I don't know, Thoughts on that? Like, am I out in left field here? Or would you guys include even that like level of, so not technical, but even the business intelligence? Yeah, I think we're starting to, to get into that verge of why is cyber oftentimes, or even threat hunting, oftentimes seen as a line item versus a business enabler. Mm -hmm. And that's the million dollar question. One of the things we strive for is to constantly make that alignment between why what cyber is doing and how is that in service to the business? Mm -hmm. Because one begets the other, one can't survive without the other. It's this symbiotic relationship that should empower each other. One of the things you said that I found very interesting is what you're discussing is making things tangible. How do we teach threat analysts how to touch a cloud? How do you make it real? How do you make that threat real? How do you make a ransomware real if they've never had one, if they never touched one? Of course, I teach uh, on Wireshark. What I like to do is go to a site that's not HTTPS, it's on port 80, has a username and login, and I have them throw up a Wireshark sniffer on it and put in a fake username and password. Then we'll stop the sniff, open it up, and go, look, there it is right there, clear as day, Joe Simpson, password one, two, three. Mm -hmm. We just touched the cloud. For the first time and potentially that person's career, they've seen the tangible, mm -hmm. what was otherwise just theoretical. And what I hear you saying is, how do we take these abstract thoughts, these abstract ideas like threats to the environment, risk? How do we take a risk? Like, yeah, I know it's a problem, but I, how do I touch a cloud? And somehow make that tangible, mm -hmm. I think is our challenge as cyber leaders in the space is to, to make sure that the business folks understand why cyber is a real thing mm -hmm. and that the cyber folks understand that business is a real thing, because you're right. Both of those folks at different times are saying, I'm the reason why the business exists. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, they're both right. Also, that's very true. Tom, anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, this is a territory that as someone who's like responding to threat, you have to have a model of, and it's the one thing that you're not going to get from an external third party. You can't buy a tool that's going to explain your business to you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the context that, you need in order to understand like what the heck's going on. So I've got this event that's coming up from some system. What does it mean? Is it a problem? Is it suspicious or not? What is that system? Oh, so it's infected. If I'm going to take an action, what is the consequence of that action? Right? Who do I need to contact? Like all those kinds of uh, business context questions, you know, commercial off the shelf product is going to understand your business and what the context and consequences are for the, you know, different assets and, and architectures within it. And so that's the hardest thing 
you know, I think that folks in our practice space, because when you start in a new organization, you may have a background in InfoSec, you may have a background in technology, but you don't have a background in this business. You don't know who's who or what's what, and you've got to build that map in order to be effective. Sure. So let's talk about threat hunting itself as a concept and your thoughts around it. So how do you advise organizations and teams to prioritize threat hunting you know, within their overall cybersecurity strategy? And what steps do you use to like ensure the team knows how to do threat hunting? Tom, why don't you go first? What I'm going to say is, so if you go look at like documentation about threat hunting, what people talk about is, you know, the first thing you do is hypothesis development. And then you take your hypothesis and you go see if you're seeing activity that looks like the hypothesis that you developed. And I think hypothesis development should sit more centrally within how we think about our security program as a whole. And that really like exercises like pen testing and red team exercises are another type of hypothesis development. So there's this talk that Donald Rumsfeld gave while he was like the secretary of defense. And he was talking about, you know, the situation in the in Iraq. And he said, there are known knowns, and then there are known unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns. And so he's sort of qualifying that I can predict what I can predict. And then there's things that I know that I don't know. And then there's other things that, you know, so as an InfoSec practitioner, I like that. I call it Rumsfeld's quadrant. And whether or not you like what Rumsfeld is irrespective of whether or not his quadrant is useful, um, you can you can think about, you know, what I find is it's like when I talk to people who have had a breach, you know, it's like, well, what happened? It's often one of those unknown unknowns. It's something that they weren't paying attention to or weren't looking at or didn't have visibility into that, like, sort of emerged out of the murk and ate them. So, like, I constantly try to be paranoid about that when I'm running a security program. I, I ask myself, so what we've got good visibility into these things and these things and these things. And it's easy to get lulled into this sense of, security about that because, you know, you're on top of the stuff you're on top of and you're not experiencing incidents. And so you feel like you got it. And so the question is, what are you not seeing? What are you not watching? What don't you have visibility into? And that's sort of hypothesis development. Like how would something go wrong here? And of course it's threat intelligence and forum. So you want to, the first way to ask that question is to go find out what's happening out there. And, you know, Right now, there's a lot of malware that's being embedded in OneNote attachments, right? So, you know, that might be your hypothesis. How are we seeing that stuff? Are we blocking that stuff? Do we see people opening OneNote attachments? Do we have the telemetry to ask that question, right? And so, but you, there's a couple of different things that fall from it. So one of them is this threat hunting activity where I'm going to go dig around and see if I'm seeing that thing happen specifically. But then I also ask, like, are there specific vulnerabilities in my infrastructure that or different controls maybe that I could have as a consequence of this hypothesis? Should I block one node attachments, for example? And then you can also like ask again telemetry. So it's vulnerability or controls and then telemetry or visibility. Do I have the ability to observe this? And then also, is it actually happening to me? And, you know, this sort of thinking informs your entire security program because it's like, you can get a NIST CSF audit and have like 100,000 little things that you're supposed to do or say a SOC 2 process you're trying to go through. And the question is, how do you prioritize those things and how deep do you go? And I think that having these hypotheses about like how things can go wrong in your organization can help you make those prioritization choices. And your thoughts, Lewis? Yeah, I think that's great. I'm going to echo a tunnel what Tom said. You know, understanding the telemetry in the organization, being able to pull in that data that's relevant 
should absolutely be a part of your cyber strategy. You know, I've met a ton of cyber folks who have not really gotten out of the cyber room. What's IT doing? What are they working on? What's some of the applications they're working on? You know, I'll tell you, some of the folks, the last time they met their HR person was when they onboarded. And what's one of the most dangerous things that are happening in the business? HR, they open up unsolicited emails with PDF attached. Out of PDF files. As, yeah, as their job. And we're not going to tell them to stop doing that. We want them to do that. It's their job. The sales folks, same thing. The supply person, they're opening up invoices, potentially unsolicited attachments from companies that sound and look familiar. These are all things that understanding the technologies involved can help our threat intel focus in on the effort. You know, if I just tell a threat analyst, hey, go out and do some threat research and see what the top threats are out there. They might come back with some really great oranges, but I have an apple orchard. Mm -hmm. And so none of those things might apply to my environment. And that's why the threat intelligence needs to be a part of the larger cyber strategy so that the cyber strategy can help inform the direction and maintain direction with the business. And this is where we keep that cyber and business in lockstep with each other so that they're partners and that threat intel can be a large foundation of making sure that the entire organization is informed on what's happening. Thank you. Let me interject about, you know, something that you're talking about. It's sort of like not all of the threats that the business face are you know, sort of the technical threats that we think about in InfoSec, like malware, right? So if you go ask the FBI what the like top problem is, they're going to say it's business email compromise. And so back to your point about people receiving like phony invoices, if you don't understand how your company does like fulfillment and, you know, invoicing, then, you know, those things are not going to necessarily set off your detectors because they may not have malware in them. It's just that someone's being convinced to wire money to the wrong right. destination. It mm-hmm. cause a lot of pain. So these are, these are conversations that you got to go out in the business and have. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And how do we get around that? How do we do that? Tabletop exercises. You know, we, we get through their, their training, not just talking through the scenario. You know, I have a fire escape plan. If my house is on fire, I'll walk out the front door. Now, have I physically ever walked out the front door, gotten to the sidewalk, pulled up my phone and said, this is where I would dial 911 or the fire department? I might not have done that. Why not? Why are tabletop exercises can mimic this reality of playing through what technologies exist in the business so that we can focus? I think we all have very limited threat intel resources, the folks, the staff, the training, So we want to focus them, do the walkthrough, walk through the front door, out to the sidewalk and say, okay, what really matters right now? Yeah, absolutely agreed. You know, because in the vein of threat hunting, right, if you don't understand what makes you attractive to an adversary, how are you going to know which threats to hunt to begin with? Because if you want to find bad on the internet, you will. That doesn't mean it was about to be bad to you, though. So you can spend the rest of your days uncovering all kinds of things that were never actually a threat to you. So still in that kind of spirit of, you know, talking about threat hunting as a whole, how do organizations, how can they even measure success of a threat hunting program? Because it does get very tricky in the ways that we're describing. And so how do you measure the, the success of a threat hunting program? And what kind of metrics would you use? Yeah, this is where it really takes a holistic look of the entire cyber program. Because, you know, going back to what Thomas said, 
you don't know what you don't know. And therefore, if you're not tracking some of those numbers, like number of threats received, number of threats detected, a number of viruses responded to, having some of these metrics allow you to then compare. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase, you can't manage what you don't measure. It's kind of along the same lines of how do you measure the threat intel program? And I would say that a place to start is number one, training on the skill sets. How much training has our team done? How does that differ from before time? And are there specific time periods where our folks tend to seek out training more times than others? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, how well do we know our environment? We got to take some of this, this kind of qualitative data to help inform some of those dashboards that we all love. Uh, no one loves a dashboard more than me. But to inform that dashboard, you have to be able to pull that data in. Mm-hmm. So some of the quantifiable data that we can pull in, number of threats detected on our systems, whether that's from the SIM, whether that's from analytics, pulling that data in and then doing comparisons on that. Mm-hmm. And then isolating that to different departments is one way. Another way is to just keep that qualitative feedback coming. Go and seek out other departments' feedback. How do other people perceive the threat on us Mm -hmm. and measure almost that internal customer happiness. What does our internal team believe we're good at? And what do they think that we have some gaps in? And I consider that just as much of a threat intel as any kind of CVE number on the internet. What do you think, Tom? I think that there is this bifurcation, I guess. So one of the statistics that I thought was really interesting in your report, Dave, is this idea that a significant number of your respondents were not willing to do threat hunting exercises because they were afraid that they would discover threats that they did not have the resources to respond to. And I I read that and I'm like, man, that is not a good place to be, right? When you believe that there's stuff out there and if you find it, it's going to be painful because you can't cover it, right? But at the same time, I think there are, you know, in the statistics, there are people on the other side of that fence who don't think that they're going to find anything. And they maybe they've done some threat hunting exercises and there were no, they didn't find a threat, right? And that's where they're getting to like, well, I don't know how to demonstrate that this is successful. We we walked around the building and we shown our flashlight and we didn't see anything. And are we wasting our time? Are we twiddling our thumbs here? And so, you know, it's interesting that there are people on both sides of that, uh, who have both perspectives on that question. To me, I kind of think it comes back to what I was saying before, which is that like, if you're doing hypothesis development, those hypotheses should influence like all facets of your security program. So you come up with a question, you know, do we have this going on? We've never, we're not sure if we've got this. And then you ask that series of questions. Do I have controls for that? Do I have visibility into that? And do I think that's really going on? And you go through those questions Each one of those times you do that, where you do this hypothesis development, then you go through the process of thinking through and investigating the reality of that hypothesis in your environment, there are going to be like constructive results that come out of that. They might not be that, gosh, you found a malware infection, you know, but they might be, you know, hey, we bolstered our controls or we were able to prioritize new efforts as a consequence of it. Mm-hmm. And so you can look back on it over time and you can see that it's constructive to you and that you feel safer as a consequence of going through that process. And so I think that that makes it 
you know, something that you can show success with. Sure. Yeah. So I'm in great agreement with both of you. The survey, when we tabulated the results, we didn't keep the answer associations like if someone was a manager or a practitioner or whatever, that was just used for what percentage of people filled out the form. We didn't then carry that over to see what percentage of managers think this, what percentage of, so like the delta between where the rubber meets the road and where the engine is, you know what I'm saying? And I would wager that if we go back and look at our data and figure out a way to tie those answers through to see how does this person answer relative to their role in relation to others like them, I bet the let's not look because we might find something, I bet those tend to be higher up in the organization. Whereas the, and then on the inverse, the practitioners, the analysts themselves are like, let's look for everything. But one has the, in business intelligence view, which is, you know, we can't spend a bunch of money. You know, we can't go looking for stuff and then discover that, you know, we're going to be bankrupt. Where the other one is, is like, no, let's go look for everything. And I think, you know, just listening to the two of you describe this, I almost wonder if there isn't some type of difference in the reason why it's hard to prioritize one over the other is because they're pointed in opposite directions, like to a large degree. So being mindful of our time, I'm going to move on. I have one last question for each of you. Tom, if it's okay, I'll start with you. So Tom, what advice would you give to cybersecurity professionals looking to prioritize cyber risk management uh, within their organization? And how can they communicate that, the importance of it? Uh, because I think a lot of this comes down to how do I convey to decision makers that I need these things? So what advice would you have for folks out there? This is the million dollar question, right? As cybersecurity professionals, we often find ourselves in the position of sort of knowing certain facts, you know, being aware of vulnerabilities, uh, being aware of risks and seeking to influence the organization to take action on them and, you know, having difficulty conveying to the leadership that they need to take that action. And we actually started this conversation in that place where people are saying, well, I don't have the tools I need. Well, it's because you don't have the budget and you don't have the budget because you're a cost center and, you know, they're trying to figure out how to spend as little on you as possible. And they know they need to spend some, but then when you show up and you say, you know, we got to spend more guys, you know, that nobody wants to hear that, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, it's hard for them to empathize with your point of view. And I guess, first of all, it helps to show people what's going on in the industry or to other organizations. Like the more that you can assemble about the world around you, and you can say, well, we haven't had this happen to us yet, but folks like us are experiencing these kinds of problems. And that's why I believe it's inevitable. That's context that can, you know, sort of be helpful. People, I think in senior management positions are influenced by what the news is focused on. They are, they are reading about like breaches and incidents that occur and that causes them the key question, you know, is that going to happen here? And so you could say, well, I hope not, but you know, I don't feel like radically adequately prepared or there are gaps. You know, the other thing that I'm going to say here is it's sort of like, Bruce Lee says to be water, right? So you put water in a cup and it becomes the cup. You put water in a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You know, I, I'm terrible about this personally. I'm a technical guy. I'm an engineer. I'm used to getting frustrated that people do not see the technical facts that I see, right? But if I'm going to influence human beings to make decisions, humans are, they're kind of soft in terms of their thinking. They don't have this sort of like on-off, correcting correct world that engineers have. And uh, if you can figure out 
you know, their perspective and how they think, and you can align what you're trying to do with their priorities, their initiatives, their perspectives, then you're going to maybe have a better time getting traction than if you're sitting there telling them something that they don't want to hear, because it's very hard to get people to believe things that they don't want to believe, frankly. Or, or like you said, that they can't see. They, they just can't oh. see it to understand it, to believe it. So therefore, you know, I will say though, Tom, you may have uh, brought on yourself all kinds of people calling because you called it the million dollar question. And I bet there's all kinds of CISOs in our audience that are thinking this guy can solve it for only a million bucks. I'm calling it because <laughs> that would be pretty affordable uh, relative to what I, the budgets I could see uh, getting spent. So thank you for that, Tom. So, Lewis, a different question for you. So how can organizations effectively balance the need for proactive cyber risk management with their need to maintain day-to-day cybersecurity operations? Because, you know, the two are one is you run out in the weeds and the other is you man the wall, right? They're two totally different approaches. So how can they balance that effectively? And what steps can leadership do to ensure that the teams are effectively managing both of those things? Because they both really need to be happening. Yeah, that's a wonderful question, David. You know, I think this comes back to the CISO as a service provider or a CISO as a ticket solver. You know, like where does that land? And one of the things I've told a lot of CISOs and a lot of CIOs is that if the first time the CISO is meeting the CFO, is that budget time, then it's too late. Both have missed out on an opportunity to have a very enriching relationship and to learn from each other and gain new perspectives. When I find cybersecurity departments struggling with what you're talking about, this balance of putting out those daily fires, or as Tom put it earlier, opening up and solving all these threats that are in the inbox every day. Like, how do we get out of this firefighting ticket-solving mode and get a little more strategic with the day so that we can be innovative? How do we shift that needle from ticket taker and order taker and problem solver to innovation, or at least strike that balance? And one of the ways we can do that is get the nerds into the business room and get the business room talking to the nerds and find that image. And I say that coming up, you know, on a ASCII keyboard on BBSs back in pre-graphics days. You know, it took a lot to shift that mindset from why don't they understand the technical problem? Why don't they get it? Like, of course, it's a threat. Why would you not understand that? And shifting that instead of, well, why don't I understand EBITDA? Why don't I understand the threats against the business Uh that the business folks are looking at? And when I work to accept both perspectives and start to have that dialogue, my understanding of the business was way deeper than I could have ever achieved in the server line. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where one path to achieving that balance of operational demands and getting involved with the business. And as we've all talked about on this in this session, getting that budgetary support to bring in the training, bring in the skills, bring in the time mm-hmm. to go in and get deeper into the business side of it. When cyber gets out of alignment with the business. And what I mean by that is the business strategy. Sure, there's a ton of cool tools I would have loved to have at several times in my career. But I was still on the terminal computer, logged into the back of a Cisco box, trying to figure out how to do things in Notepad because it was out of alignment. We couldn't have those cool tools. And so making sure cyber gets out of the room 
understands the business perspective. Get the CISO to meet the CFO. Get the CFO to meet these other folks. Getting the CIO into the discussion. Get these senior leaders. I've even encouraged CMOs. Get the marketing officer in here. Or get that person in here. Get the revenue officer. Let's get, and does this take time? Of sure. course, it's an investment. But even 30 minutes a week to say, yeah. hey, this is what we see. And then they say, hey, this is what we see. And then we all go back and do some reading. Yeah. That's how, that's one path to gaining that, that relief of every day is a firefight. Every day is in the weeds. Every day is underwater. That's how you kind of find that path out mm-hmm. is by achieving a perspective on both sides, but mostly getting the CISO into these other conversations mm-hmm. so that they, he, he or she can make sure that the cyber strategy is aligned with the business. Sure. Yeah, you know, you just highlighted something that I often have to take the time to explain to practitioners because they don't consider the impact. But your marketing team is going to be, stands a very good chance of being the motivation behind the next attack on you. They are going to say something that either makes somebody unhappy and they attack you out for some kind of retribution, whether it be DDoS or they try to embarrass you, or they're going to say something in a way that says, we are so special that what we have, no one else has, and they're going to make you attractive to somebody who wants those things. And if the security team and the marketing team aren't coordinated, you will run into problems. You will be like, why are we getting DDoSed? Oh, it turns out in marketing, they went and said this thing that we could stop, you know, I don't know, uh, something that somebody doesn't like, you know, and they don't realize like we're in the day of digital activism. I mean, look at all of the digital sit-ins that happened during the Occupy efforts that were happening in the early 2000s. I mean, that stuff, that was all real. And that was because people said things and they said things to people who were willing to do something about it. And I, I would wager one in 50 people I've ever mentioned that to was like, well, yeah, of course, everybody else was goes, oh, hmm, yeah, I you know, hadn't thought of that. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and, and uh, have this discussion. You know, it's a very lofty topic. And I think it's important that people understand that nobody truly understands the whole thing and that there are so many perspectives out there that, like you said, you have to get out of the, you got to get out of the machine room and go meet these people to even get these perspectives. Both of you have taught me something today in terms of how I was even viewing this. And that's 100% of the people I've discussed so far. So meaning the two of you, both of you were able to give me an entirely different perspective that I didn't have coming into this conversation. And that's exactly what we're shooting for. So thank you very much for your time. So if I may, if there are listeners uh, want to follow your efforts and your works, Tom, how can people track what you're into? Are you on LinkedIn or social media? Yeah, I, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Mastodon. I actually, um, as a side project, I have launched a newsreader for Mastodon recently. And so I am on IOC.exchange, which uh, sounds uh, pretty relevant. And you can find me as uh, ECIUS over there. Okay. Hey, if you would uh, send me an email with those details, because uh, I can't yeah, say sure. I... I can't say I'm there yet. So, and Lewis, yourself? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, David. Everybody can reach out to me. I'd love to connect, continue this discussion. It's something I love to talk about, taking that whole threat process and that whole risk process from potential to actual and beyond and how the organization might respond. Excellent. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And I hope all of our listeners enjoy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. 
For the latest episodes, please visit team-cumry.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.